MSW Media. House Democrats are moving forward with impeachment as new troubling details emerge of efforts by Trump and Barr to push foreign governments to help them investigate the origins of the Mueller investigation. What will happen with the impeachment inquiry going forward? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm ordinarily joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's on the campaign trail. Uh, so we are going to be bringing in Asha Rangappa, uh, your favorite guest, according to our recent listener survey. Uh, Asha is a former FBI agent. She's a professor at Yale University, and she's a CNN uh, legal and national security analyst. Uh, and frankly, uh, she is a person that uh, I turn to often to you know, talk through and discuss these issues. So this time, instead of it being me and Asha on the phone, it's going to be me and Asha here on the podcast with all of you. Welcome back, Asha. Thanks for coming and joining me again. Thanks for having me, Renato. I, I will tell you, the, the news just breaks so fast. Uh, just in the last 24 hours, Mike Pompeo admitted that he was on the call um, with uh, President Trump talking to the Ukrainian president. We had this sort of uh, faux session with the uh, state a, uh, OIG who came to Capitol Hill for an urgent meeting, and it turned out to not be very urgent. Uh, we've had what I la- what I guess I'll call a shift show uh, today, <laughs> where the New York Times uh, the New York Times published a story, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, the whistleblower had reached out to the House Intelligence Committee first. Uh, and was told to uh, submit a w- to go through uh, the official channels, uh, and much is being made of that on the right. Uh, and then, of course, we also have, and I, we're going to focus on the impeachment inquiry, but it's worth noting that also what happened today, we have the um, Southern, Southern District of New York and Justice Department uh, seeking to intervene in, in the personal suit that Trump has uh, brought against a state prosecutor. This, I think it's the Manhattan DA that is investigating uh, Trump's financial dealings, his, his tax, uh, specifically his, his uh, tax returns. So a lot going on. And I have to say, um, the, a lot of the questions from people, Asha, are you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen next and what this all means. So I'm, I'm curious what your reaction is to some of the recent events uh, of the last day or two. It's really hard to parse through, Renato. I mean, it's like drinking out of a fire hose, you know. Um, I mean, listen, I think, and, and you and I had a offline conversation yesterday. I think that despite all of the noise, the fact remains, like, what, what you can never erase is this call, this phone call between the president and the president of Ukraine, where he was essentially leveraging his presidential authority uh, over funds in order to secure um, a personal campaign benefit. Um, and so a lot of all of this other stuff feels like noise or it only kind of adds to the gravity of that particular event. Um, and I think that that's kind of how to uh, people need to approach this is to not, you know, keep the eye on the prize, keep your eyes on the prize is what I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. As you know, I wrote a column in Politico exactly. mm-hmm. yeah, the other the other day and that was essentially my argument is that, you know, one one piece of advice I literally last week when I was trying a case, I was telling my client the same thing privately that you know, uh, separate and apart from this with the case that we had that, you know, the number one insight I have from trying cases is that it's important to be telling the simple story and to force the other side to tell the complicated story. And so, you know, if I'm the, the, you know, the Democrats here, what I would be doing is focusing on this Ukraine story. It's so simple. Everyone understands it. You can explain it in about 15 seconds. 
And it's really there's no defense to it. And so let the Republicans try to distract with all this other stuff and complicated stuff and just stay focused on that story and focus on getting to the bottom of that story and just let everything else uh, kind of fade into the background. And, and I think, you know, there I, I will say that 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 column generated a lot of criticism. There's a lot of people who feel like, well, that somehow sanctions uh, Trump's other conduct or that. Um, you know, the, the having more evidence out there is going to convince the other side more. Uh, and I don't see that at all. And I will say, you know, I think what we saw today, Asha, really was the Republicans now finally latching onto something. I mean, you could really see the sort of the right wing machine in gear uh, yeah, today. Very push, quickly. Very quickly pushing the shift uh, line the of shift attack. Show. The shift yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. Um, Exactly. And I think, you know, my understanding, Renato, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that focusing on the Ukraine piece, even if it's for a single article of impeachment or a few that that are based on that and maybe obstruction of that particular inquiry, doesn't preclude other articles from being added later or you – know, I mean – in other words, I don't think it's an either or. This seems to me to be an analog to a criminal uh, you know, investigation slash indictment where you can kind of have superseding indictments. Um, you know, it's not necessarily that if you focus on this, you're excusing the other behavior or necessarily taking it off the table for all perpetuity. Well, that, that's completely right. And uh, one thing I will say, though, is, is is that, you know, there's a lot of, of of political folks who said you get one shot at impeachment. And if you fail, the, the public is not going to uh, look kindly on you trying again. And I think that I mean, that's a fair point. But I, I would say that, you know, you have to take the shot that you have with the best uh, evidence that you have. I don't really think throwing in all this Mueller stuff is going to convince any of the people on the Republican side of anything. They've known about all of that conduct for for quite some time and have written it off. Um, And so, you know, that was never about um, that, you know, bringing those accounts on that was was never about convincing, in my mind, convincing Republican senators, but about, you know, Democrats feeling that they had to do the right thing. Uh, And here's a chance to do the right thing on, I think, on something that's you know, a, a, a better uh, selling point to the public, and more importantly, I think a, an offense that is so obviously wrongful and easy to explain that I think it would resonate more with the public. And it's also something that I think, you, because the most important evidence is already out there, it's something that could be wrapped up by the end of the year, which is important because if this drags on through next year, when we're you know the Iowa caucuses are going on and the and the um, and New Hampshire and so forth, you could imagine a lot of Republican senators saying, like, why are we doing, why would we possibly just voting no and being able to use the excuse that we want to let the American people decide in a few months? Those are all great points. And, um, you know, one of the one of the things about the Ukraine thing is that it's completely divorced from um, the Mueller inquiry, uh, at least in terms of, you know, how it came about. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, let's not underestimate, as we are watching in real time, that, you know, Trump and other people in his orbit will commit more crimes in the, sure. as, as this gets investigated. And I'm sure you've seen that before, too, whether it's obstruction of, uh, you know, Congress in terms of producing documents. Um, I know that the Department of Justice issued a preservation order to the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to destroy any of those documents, and of course, if they if they have already done so, or if they do so in the future, that would constitute in itself a separate act of obstruction. Again, divorced from anything related to, say, the Mueller investigation. That, that's right. I will say though, you know, it's an interesting point that you raised a moment ago, where you said that you know you pro- you've probably seen this before, or not to people committing crimes, you know, while you're investigating them, and more crimes piling up. And that is without a doubt the case. And I think another thing that often happened when I was investigating uh, particularly white collar crime is you would investigate it and there'd be more and more crime that you'd learn of. It may have happened a few years ago, but you'd interview more people and you'd suddenly learn about this and that. And, you you know, with most cases, you know, whether it's public corruption or, or white collar crime, you could investigate those cases often for years and years and years. I mean, I remember telling a defense attorney of a, a wealthy real estate uh, a, a mogul that, 
you know, I could investigate your client for years and come up with more stuff. I'm I, and I'm drawing a line here. If he pleads to this, <laughs> I won't keep investigating. And in fact, in that case, I ended up investigate when he wouldn't plead guilty. I investigated further and added more counts, but I could have added way more if I kept investigating. But, you know, one one lesson I learned as a prosecutor is when I was a junior prosecutor, I had these cases that would go on for years because I just want to investigate every detail. And I learned at, over time that at a certain point you have to draw a line and draw a circle around a certain amount of conduct in a certain group of people and be like, this is what I'm charging. And I know there's this other stuff out there and maybe more information will develop there, but I've got this and I'm going to charge this. And I think that's the lesson that I'm trying to get across to to folks in that column. And I think that we, you know, all have to be mindful of and wanting the Congress to try to do everything at once. And I mean, we're even seeing that right now, Bernardo. I mean, we're seeing more potential phone calls or conversations that have come up with other countries where he may have asked for favors or help, you know, and, and that's reporting, you know, whether that is going to be confirmed with actual transcripts like they have in the Ukraine case remains to be seen. But, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out the possibility that there has been some kind of pattern of behavior um, even within this line of inquiry. Yeah, I, I, I and I'm glad you brought that up, Asha, because one thing that I think is important to talk about is, you know, there's been these series of phone calls and visits. I mean, bars are making overseas visits essentially chasing what has been outlined by um, uh, George Papadopoulos, right? Or, uh, yeah, George, is it George Papadopoulos? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Papadopoulos, uh, in his tweets, I mean, all these conspiracy theories about Italy and Australia and all these countries that are somehow involved in an international conspiracy against Trump. And, you know, that is bizarre and wrongful for a whole slew of reasons that I think you and I should kind of tease out here on the podcast, but it's distinct from what has happened with Ukraine because in the Ukraine example, there's no investigation in the United States. He's not using the FBI or the DOJ or Barr to do this. All that, What's happening to Ukraine is he, instead of going to Trump, instead of going to a, a law enforcement agency in the United States, is having Giuliani going off to a foreign country to try to do this investigation because there's no there there. There's nothing for law enforcement even, you know, plausibly to look at. Whereas at this bar thing, you know, there's technically this investigation investigating the investigators. You know, I, I'm very, you know, very skeptical of that whole enterprise for all sorts of reasons. But it's a different type of thing. And I'm worried that, you know, Trump and Barr will try to confuse things and make the Ukraine call seem like it's part of what's going on with, you know, the trips to Italy and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. You, t- you and I talked about that. And I think I think that's a a great thing to keep in mind. And I hope that <clears throat> um, the House committees keep that in mind as well. But there is something very wrongful about what's going on here. I mean, I think. A lot of listeners are really disturbed by what Barr is doing. And I think, you know, people like you and me who are veterans, you know, in your case of the FBI, in my case of the Justice Department, we're all very concerned and upset by what Barr is doing. Um, I know a lot of my of my, um, uh, you know, other former federal prosecutors who are from the Southern District of New York were very upset by the action that was taken there today. And I'm just and I'm curious, you know, if you can articulate what you know, what is your what's your take? What is your concern about about what Barr has been doing? So my concern with Barr is that it is nefarious for precisely the reason that you highlighted, that he basically has the cloak of the law enforcement authority of the United States to hide behind um, to do whatever it is he's doing, which makes it harder to kind of parse out um, whether, like, what whether what he is doing um, is within the bounds of his authority or not. Um, and I think that also compounding that is that he is also involved, or at least overseeing, several actions which appear to be stymieing efforts to. Um, call out the president's bad behavior. Uh, You know, he oversees the Office of Legal Counsel. He oversees the criminal division, which makes determinations on whether to pursue further investigations. Um, So in terms of, you know, what, what I think he highlights is 
we have taken for granted, even in kind of the worst instances of presidential misconduct, whether it was, uh, you know, Nixon, even, you know, Clinton, I mean, whatever, that that the FBI, that the Department of Justice would be independent and would pursue pursue any evidence of wrongdoing to its its final conclusion. And I think what Barr has done is cast that into doubt. And I think once you do that, and I said this yesterday to you, you know, Department of Justice, in my opinion, is kind of the crown jewel of our government in a way because it it has this, you know, unprecedented independence. Um, once you call that into doubt, I think you just don't know, like, well, where do you go from there is my question. Um, and, and how do you even begin to start to look at or, or, or figure out what is lawful and what isn't? Yeah, I have to say, uh, you know, the the reputation of the Justice Department and the role in which that plays, uh, particularly in policing corrupt conduct by political figures, is important. And I will say that it, it exists because the Justice Department and federal prosecutors are seen and, and the FBI are seen as neutral players that are not trying to you know, pursue some sort of, you know, political gain or, you know, move forward some sort of political agenda through their efforts. And if we get to a point where the FBI and DOJ are becoming used for sort of a partisan uh, political goal, you know, I think that we all lose from that. The, The United States loses. And so, you know, one concern that I have is, you know, I'm concerned about you know, having the FBI and DOJ getting drawn into so much, they're in the thick of, and they are used by Trump both as a, uh, you know, they're they're a whipping boy, so to speak, for Trump. You know, they're a target of his scorn and attack. They're used in his, you know, advertisements and his online, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, efforts, fundraising efforts, and so on. But also, they're now being employed by him to pursue. Sometimes, you know, in many ways, it's like former uh, heads of that of those, uh, you know, of those agencies. So I guess, you know, for me, you know, I, there's a lot of people out there and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, hear from them on television or elsewhere where they're they're proclaiming a lot of faith in the DOJ and FBI. I will say I have a lot of love for those institutions and for the work that they do, but I am growing concerned about whether or not those institutions are going to be used by Trump um, in order to do damage to our country. That's right. You know, I mean, these are bureaucracies, right? And so, you know, if the the very head of them is is pulling them in a direction where, um, you know, they, they are essentially acting as political extensions of the White House, I mean, you can have whistleblowers, but again, as I just highlighted, then you also have this, you know, paradox where that very same department can, as we've seen, you know, kind of block those whistleblowers. Um, I mean, you'd have to have kind of a mass mutiny or something to really uh, resist that that leadership, right? And um, I think it just is highlighting the dangers of having someone like Barr in that position, and I think it kind of gets back to the Ukraine call, Renato, because I think that right now the question is, what can Americans use as their true north, right, mm-hmm. in terms of orienting themselves on how to make sense of everything that's going on? And it, it maybe it used to be the you know Department of Justice is on it. That's kind of that helps me figure out that you know this, there may be something uh, fishy here. We can't trust that anymore. I would say the true north now is something that is just fundamental in the Constitution and in the idea of someone taking public office, which is when you enter a position of public trust, you are using all the authority that is conferred to you by the people to to further the interests of the people. You cannot use that power for a personal gain. You cannot self-deal. And so I think whenever we are looking at things that are coming up, the pe- you know, people should ask themselves, 
is this a, some is this something that is in the interest of the United States? Is this something that is furthering the foreign policy of the United States that uh, protects our national security, or is this something that benefits Donald Trump personally? And if it's the latter, then I think something smells, and that should be the clue. Yeah, I have to say one one reason why I feel like. The Ukraine episode stands separate and apart from a lot of this other stuff is that it answers that question very easily. I think everyone understands that getting dirt on Biden and his family is is, just benefits Trump, doesn't benefit the nation more broadly. But, you know, as to this other stuff, you know, that's part of the I think the danger of it. I mean, I'm very concerned about the way I mean, I wrote a column, I don't know, a few weeks ago about the case against Andrew McCabe, which looks very weak uh, to me. But I am concerned because on its face, an argument can be made. Like if you take the allegations against, you know, that, that Trump is making and his allies are making against Comey and McCabe and, you know, Holder and everybody else, Bruce Orr, all these people that they're they're talking about. If you take them seriously on their face and you don't kind of go beneath the surface, they sound like something that should you should be concerned about. And it's really the fact the, the bottom line is that they make a bunch of accusations that are baseless, often by distorting the facts, often by leaving out facts. And so really, it's a factual issue rather than, you know, something that on its face the public can make sense of. And what's so uh, alarming and pernicious about it is that the average person who's focused on their kids' soccer game or, um, you know, their fantasy football league or whatever it may be, um, they're going to have trouble when they hear in the news that, okay, well, the attorney general is you know, investigating corruption at the FBI, um, that sounds like something that we should all be concerned about, right? Uh, that's the concern about it. No, it, it's a very, it's a whole Jedi mind trick that's happening. Um, and, yeah, like I said, the fact that the DOJ may be a part of it is really what makes it most problematic of all. It is very problematic, and yet uh, because it's so complicated, it's the sort of thing. That's why I'm like, well, I would focus on the Ukraine piece because it's it's so complicated, but it's it's very problematic, and it's something that is hard and nuanced for journalists to cover. It's the sort of thing that I think is hard for journalists to cover in a way that can really inform the public, and that's so important. And I think we could see that with what we've been calling the Shift Show today, where the New York Times was trying to cover this, uh, you know, what the whistleblower did and how that came, you know, how he or she came to be, you know, on the path that they were on becoming a whistleblower and reported something that is, I think, you know, of, of interest to the public, which is, okay, you know, this person, you know, tried to raise the concerns internally when, and when nothing happened, reached out to the house Intel committee and was told, you know, you need to go through a, you know, the official channels, whistleblower channels, whatever. And that is being distorted into something else. And I think part of the issue is the way that the New York Times framed the story, which made it easy to uh, misconstrue. Um, and there is something of interest there to the public, but I think that that and I don't think this was something they did intentionally. I think that by framing it the way they did, it made it seem like the whistleblower was had a greater involvement with Schiff's staff than was actually the case. Yes, I think that's right. Um, basically, I think it was the tweet that uh, that article was, um, you know, shared under made it sound like there was kind of a level of coordination uh, between the whistleblower and the House Intelligence Committee, as opposed to, I think, what would be normal in a situation. And you've even been, you've been in the government, and so have I. I mean, you kind of, first you go through your internal processes. If you suddenly find that you are being blocked and you feel that you have a urgent national security matter, I mean, you're going to look for some other place where you're, you're going to be like, okay, what do I do next? Right. right. And, you know, it seems like if you are, have something that has classified information, maybe a congressional committee that deals with classified information, you say, like, look, what do I do if I have information about wrongdoing? What, what do I do? I've, I've gone to my internal agency. I feel like it's not being taken seriously or it might even be being buried. And then that person says, you need to get a lawyer. 
and you should go through the inspector general. That's the best way to get this to Congress. I mean, that's effectively what happened here. Um, and so the guy says, okay. And so he goes to the inspector general. <laughs> now, um, you know, how this amounts to, you know, coordination or some kind of conspiracy, again, I don't know. One thing to note, Renato, is that under the IC whistleblower statute, let's say that the ICIG had determined that the whistleblower's complaint was not credible or not urgent. It actually outlines a procedure for that whistleblower to be able to contact Congress directly. You know, our laws contemplate that, you know, even in kind of the lowest level kind of uh, situation, that there is a mechanism for a whistleblower to reach out to the congressional committee if they believe that this information has to go there and 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 the channel you know that even if it's been deemed um, not credible and not urgent presumably in that case the congress would say okay thanks for letting us know so i mean there it's not even like it is in some way um inappropriate even you know as a matter of law in the sense that it anticipates this kind of situation in one way or another, too, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. I, I will say that, you know, to me, there's no real allegation that shifted anything improper here. I think the most that people have or that have raised is that, well, he made a, a, a false statement on MSNBC when he said that we are not— um, in you know direct contact with the whistleblower, and that turned out not to be true. And you know, I you could parse that however you want. I don't know what you know what uh, you know would he whether he misspoke or whether he was being imprecise. I will remind everyone that it just shows you how hard it is to you know it's harder you know when you are in a position of of power and authority. Uh, people take every word you say so seriously and pick it apart. You have to be very careful with your words. But I, I have to. Well, and I'll um, add, Renato, that Mark Zay, the whistleblower's lawyer, has, I mean, however we want to interpret it, has also said, no, we have not coordinated with, con- like, or, or, you know, there's been, like, in other words, this was like the most superficial kind of request for guidance and feedback. I don't even think that there was ever any direct communication between Schiff and the whistleblower, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, there was. And it was some staffer got a phone yeah. call and then right. said, yeah, you should go, you know, you, if you have a complaint, go to the whist- through the whistleblower process. And the person's like, OK, I, I agree. I, I think but I think not, there's really there's no wrongdoing here. But, you know, what, what was what's happening here? The reason that this was consequential and the reason I think it generated such a reaction from the right is that what how Trump works is, you know, and, and you and I've t- talked about this before is, you know, I. I, my read on on Trump is that he's sort of like a jujitsu artist. He's a counterpuncher. He's a guy who he needs to have. He wants to have an enemy, and then he what he does is he waits for you to do something and attacks you and tries to make it all about you and what you've done wrong. And so he loves having these enemies that he can demonize. And this is he's not the first one to do this. The right did this with all sorts of people in the past, whether it's Hillary Clinton or John Kerry or others in the past. But he's 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 I think. Taking it to a new level. And the issue, the, the whistleblower made it very hard for him because we don't know the person's identity. Uh, it appears that they're like a CIA officer or some sort of uh, official that everyone can imagine that person as being someone virtuous. And it's really hard for Trump to attack that person because that person's not out there and they haven't really done anything wrong. And, you know, if and when that person's identity is revealed and, you know, maybe they gave, uh, you know, $50 to Hillary Clinton, you know, then that can tie him or her to uh, somebody that is a, quote, hated figure. And this was a way that, okay, now this person, oh, now we know, I think on the right, uh, Trump's allies are saying, okay, now we know this person's tied to Schiff in some way, uh, so this means something. And and the the reality is different from that, but that's what I think, you know, they've been able to make this story about. I think that, I think that's right. I, I have to say, I mean, I think they're going to run with this, but Again, the strength of the underlying allegation, the true north that we have is this transcript. It does not at all undermine this primary source. 
which is what Trump said and what he did in this phone call and clearly his motivations for doing it. I mean, and I think that's the piece that they just cannot escape. Um, it is still unclear to me why they released this transcript. I don't know how anyone thought that this was somehow exculpatory or going to be helpful. Um, and, you know, whatever is happening, happening with the ship show, the real shit show is just, <laughs> is what what happened in this phone call and i think um i, I think this might be a minor distraction i think they're still going to have a hard time getting away from the bottom line i think so too and i and i think one thing that i will say so you know a lot of listeners have asked about you know for example can they keep delaying the articles of impeachment while they build up you know new evidence and more evidence about other things you know, I, I think, as you as you, I mentioned in my comments earlier, I think the 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 impetus on the Democrats is to do the opposite, to speed to the finish line here uh, and and not to to allow the stonewalling of the Trump administration or the distractions by Trump to derail them. And so, you know, one thing that I did like seeing was shift to sort of being full speed ahead even though they're, you know, Giuliani's saying he won't appear, even though Pompeo is raising all these concerns, you know, litigating this stuff in the courts takes weeks, months. It could take a long time. You know, what the Democrats, I think, don't need to do now is to spend a lot of time uh, sort of flailing and waiting for the courts to, you know, do something. Um, they need to just sort of move forward and say, okay, well, we don't have Giuliani's testify, testimony. We're going to try to compel his testimony. But in the meantime, we're going to call the witnesses we can. We're going to move forward as best as we can. And then just be prepared to vote. If you can't get Giuliani in there, you don't get Giuliani in there or Pompeo or whoever. And, and just move forward with what you do have. Yeah, and they're in a powerful position because what they're basically saying is we have the best evidence. And, you know, one of the things I said on TV last night is at this point what they really have is a rebuttable presumption. Like, we have this phone call. This is what you said. And you were basically leveraging aid on this foreign country doing some dirty work for you. That is a prima facie case of abuse of power. Now, you know, if you have something that rebuts that, like we're looking for more evidence. I mean, who knows what this will uncover. But if you don't, we've still got what we need to go forward um, and by the way, we're conducting an impeachment inquiry, which is our, you know, broadest constitutional power, really, uh, separation of powers wise, and we'll consider it obstruction. I mean, I think the House is really in the driver's seat here, um, given what they have. If they only had the complaint at this point, it would be a much different story, right? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 the White House releasing this transcript. Um, I mean, this is like for you when you were doing, you know, a mob case or a public corruption case, like you have the phone call. Right. You have the dude talking. And so, like, you know, it's great to bolster that with a lot of other things to make it just, you know, airtight. But you still have the basic prima facie evidence that you need. I, I agree with that. I, and that's why, I mean, one thing that I still do not understand is why they, re why they released the um, the uh, transcript, and then also why they released the uh, whistleblower complaint so quickly. In other words, you know, if the Trump administration just stonewalled, as they've done with so many other things, you know, this could have built up over a long time. There was reports. Oh, we'd be in a black hole right now. Right. And then he'd do something else and, you know, people be focused on the next thing, you know, bars in Italy or whatever the new thing of the day is <laughs> and whatever. Like, what's he doing in Italy? And like, you know, or whatever the thing of the day is, oh, the, the taxes, you know, which we can talk about, you know, the ta you know, isn't this awful what they're doing with this? Well, why do you why do you think they released it? Like, what were they thinking? I think that Trump, my, my best guess, and this is speculation, so I'm going to say that, is Trump keeps saying that this is a perfect call, a perfect call. He, he says this every day. So he may have just really believed that this was super perfect and wonderful and insisted that it get released. And perhaps in the past there were people who would stop him or be a check on him, like, you know, General Kelly would be like, no, we're not doing this. And 
he doesn't have that person left. And, and you know, there has been some reporting that Mick Mulvaney, you know, that, that Trump or Trump and, and his, you know, some of the others around him are upset that Mick Mulvaney didn't have a better plan for dealing with the fallout from the transcript. And, um, you know, it really my, my guess is that that Mulvaney didn't stop Trump from doing what he wanted to do. Yeah, because there's no good reason to do it. Yeah. It was dumb. It was dumb. It was dumb. I mean, the the thing is, I will say to to give them a tip of the cap, this did work <laughs> for Trump Jr. So Trump Jr., if you remember, released all those emails, being like, "Yep, I want to," you know, I, "I, you know, if it's what you say, I love it," you know, especially oh, that's in the summer. True. That's true. And, and and it was awful, and it just it ended up kind of eventually, you know, fizzling it, it, out. Fizzling out. And so I think maybe their thought was, let's just get the worst of it out there. I think that's why Pompeo came forward today and took the heat and said, I'm on the call. I was on the call. And they're hoping that there'll be a distraction or they'll find some way to muddy the waters and, you know, they'll they'll rally the Republicans and they'll move on. I think that's exactly what they're hoping at this point. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the Don Jr. Um, comparison, because I wonder if part of what happened, I mean, so much of this is about the psychology of the American public, right? And what happened in the Don Jr. case is you had first a lot of reporting about an ostensible cover-up. And, you know, was this the real reason? Like, what was really happening? Was, was Donald Trump involved in, you know, creating this uh, press release or whatever? And then you get this underlying evidence which, frankly, is kind of damning, uh, in my opinion, still. <laughs> but, you know, it wasn't as damning as maybe the coverage of the cover-up, like, built it up to be. And here you actually have what the release of the underlying event. And then you subsequently had reporting that then they tried to cover it up by putting it I think that psychologically impacts people, right? Like his first the first impression is holy crap, this is like really bad. Like why did he freaking say that? Like who says that on on a telephone call? And then you get the double whammy of oh my god, and then they were trying to hide these on these, you know, um code word servers and you know, that that means it must have been really bad. Whereas in some ways when you reverse that um that chain of revelation you might end up with the opposite effect. I'm just kind of throwing out, like, and I think this is, goes to the bigger issue, which is the Mueller investigation really helped Trump because a criminal investigation keeps things under wraps, and so the public is really relying on these little drips and, and you know, things that are coming out and, and trying to put them together, whereas what's happening here is just, like, everything is being barfed out in real time. If they had a special prosecutor, like this would not be happening right now. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, and, and certainly. And if Trump had just during the Mueller investigation just watched Fox News and ate some Cheetos or pizza or whatever, he'd be fine. Like in other words, the, totally. the, what he got him. Yeah, if we got himself in trouble was all the stuff for trying to fire Mueller, fire Comey. You know, if he just sort of chilled if out, he'd shut up and just gone about his life like it wasn't happening. Absolutely. Right. But as to this, I think another problem is Asha. Just you know, is that on its face. The transcript of the call is kind of tells the whole story and is inherently problematic. So, you know, there the abuse of power is clear from the call itself. And the difference with the Don Jr. stuff is, yeah, it's really shady. It's really bad. But, it, you know, the, the, the goalpost there was, did Don Jr. you know, commit a federal crime um, and did was Donald Trump in on it? And I have to say the expectations got we're in bizarro world uh, from that entire investigation where the whole way the media narrative was, is there a conspiracy between the, you know, the Russian uh, Russian intelligence operatives and the Trump campaign? And it's like to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, which is what Robert Mueller was trying to look for. That's like very, very difficult. Whereas here, the issue is there's, is there an abuse of power and did Donald Trump do it? And it's like, okay, we literally get the call transcript from the White House, and it says it right on its face. Well, there you go. I mean, it's just sort of there. Yeah, I mean, this is this is Nixon ordering the break. Like, I mean, it's like how where you know you, there there is not much more to say beyond that, except that that's bad and illegal, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I will say one thing that's interesting to me, though. It's it's so I. 
you know, I asked uh, listeners for, for questions literally just a few hours ago. I, we have almost 100 questions from listeners. <laughs> and if I had to say what is the biggest bucket of questions, a big bucket of questions from people are, when is Congress going to use its inherent contempt powers? When are they going to, like, toss Giuliani in prison or toss Pompeo in prison? I don't think that's are in jail, whatever, however you want to term it. I don't think that will ever happen for all sorts of reasons that I think I've explained in the podcast before. What, what is your view on that, Asha? Because people want to know about that. Yeah, so I am not an expert in uh, Congress's contempt powers. But, okay, so we know that they're not going to use their criminal contempt powers because that would require the Department of Justice to actually enforce it, which Barr is not going to do, right? Um, well, they think that, and that you can use, like back in, you know, 100 plus years ago, you know, the, the, they would send the sergeant in arms out to like, you know, get people and put them up in the in the little lockup in the Capitol. Yeah, there was some like like jail in the basement, right? I actually asked somebody. I was like, "Is this that? That's still there?" Because I would, I, I think that would have been kind of cool if they like sent somebody down to the dungeon in in the basement of Congress. But apparently, that room is not there anymore. So um, one of the things that uh, someone who has had experience on the Hill said it's not really. It, it's unclear who would be the enforcement right. person, right? Is like, is it like Sergeant at Arms like goes out and like tries to you know arrest. I don't know, the Secretary of State or, or whoever. Um, and then where do they put them? So I think that there are just logistical problems beyond the fact that they haven't used it in a, in over 100 years. That's what I always come to. The logistics of it, it, it's hard. People at home, I think that my guess is that there's, so I, I'll make a confession. I'm not up all day watching cable news, but my suspicion is that there are some legal analysts on TV that are like, let's just lock them up. They have inherent contempt. I have seen some stuff, um, you know, the times I have watched cable news where some people say this. And what I was saying, what I was saying, um, Renato, just to clarify, is my understanding is they can go to a court and get a criminal contempt order, which would then be enforceable by I assume, like the FBI or something, but I, I think U.S. Marshals, it'll be U.S. Marshals, but yeah, yeah, U.S. Marshals, but like I think that involves you know going to the court and then you know is there a question on whether that would be enforceable? Then they have they do have a civil contempt um, right authority where they can find the person right like day after day and just like make them pay money for not complying, and then inherent contempt is kind of their um, own like authority that is emanating from themselves as an institution and that's what we're talking about is that they don't really have an enforcement mechanism or a place to put people i i you're yeah exactly right well it's good you're you're clearly the professor of the two of us because i think you explain that <laughs> I very want well people to know like what the three avenues are yeah you totally explained that well you're exactly right so we're talking about the third option and my point is the idea that Sergeant in Arms is going to like walk into the State Department building, you know, go through. I guess I imagine you can imagine the Sergeant in Arms like, how's he even going to get past security to get in in there with his weapon and everything to Does arrest? Does he have a weapon? Who knows? But I assume. But I mean, you know, there are people who are probably vandalizing the Capitol or doing other things that they have to deal with. There are security concerns at the Capitol. There are Capitol Police. Right. You know, but like removing people who are disruptive and hearings, et cetera. Yeah, but are they really going to be out there, like, you know, going to Giuliani's house and arresting him and putting him somewhere? No, no. they're, they're not going to do a armbar tackle on Giuliani. Yeah, the people at home, uh, I always get why. You know, why is that? And I, I'm trying to explain it as best I can, but that's not going to happen. But, um, you know, <laughs> what that's, but I do think to me, being serious about this is just moving forward um, as opposed to, you know, and, and just. To me, going to the courts, you can go to the courts. You can do walk and chew gum at the same time. But while that's going on, just keep moving forward. Keep with your investigation. You know, the reality is, like, you know, it would be nice to have, you know, Giuliani in the chair taking the fifth or something, I I imagine, if if you're a House investigator. But, you know, if that doesn't happen, you just keep moving forward with the evidence you do have. You know, I guess another thing that I that I'm getting a lot of questions on, um, you know, is, you know, people asking, well, what, you know, sort of procedurally, um, what what happens with this impeachment inquiry? You know, is um, is, you know, is there a chance that, you know, this never gets taken up by the Senate? Um, and, you know, is there a chance they wait for a long time to, to take it up? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you what my sense is, right? So, yeah. um, you know, these committees do their investigation or their inquiries. 
Um, I think that ultimately their findings get consolidated in the House Judiciary Committee, where, which is where any articles of impeachment would come out of. Um, and I don't know all the procedural things that require, you know, actually formally presenting um, and voting on articles of impeachment, but articles of impeachment are effectively uh, the analog of a grand jury indictment. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's and, a charge. It's an accusation. Yeah. It's basically the House saying, we have now finished our investigation, and we believe that there is probable cause to believe that the president has committed um, these, you know, offenses in Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, blah, blah, blah. We vote on it. These are the ones that we are essentially, quote, unquote, charging him with. Um, I don't think that there is necessarily any discretion for the Senate to not take it up um, for a trial at that point. I think even Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that he would have to. But my understanding is that they then can come up with whatever rules they want for that, right? So there's no um, playbook for how that trial can go. I mean, I assume that they could effectively do the equivalent of a motion to dismiss on the very first day if they want to, I assume. Yeah, I mean, there. So there. One thing I there has been there. There is um, precedent out there in prior impeachment trials, not only of presidents but also of judges and people like that. And you know, there's a, a good, a very good book that uh, Lawrence Tribe wrote about impeachment. He was a prior guest, and um, you know, I spent time reading about all of these prior impeachment trials in that book. And you know, there are precedents, but you know, to be just very blunt here, you know, I don't really think that. The presentation of evidence and arguments in the course of that impeachment trial is going to be some sort of game changer. In other words, you know, we've all lived through you and I, Ash, I believe we're in law school. We were both in law school uh, together when um, when Bill Clinton's impeachment trial happened. And there was a very long report and everyone read that star report and had opinions about uh, what was happening. And it's not like. Lindsey Graham's arguments in front of the Senate or the evidence that he and his fellow House managers were putting on um, really moved the needle. I, you know, I imagine it could be amongst the Senate. Well, you know, we're not senators. We don't know. But it it's it seems to me that the more important thing is, you know, being able to make the case to the American people about what that's about and why this is serious. Here, I don't think there's any question of did he do it, uh, well, although maybe in his own mind. I don't know. I think that's right. And I mean, what I have said continuously is the only variable that we really have here, and I, I mean, I, you know, we can take a snapshot right now and say, you know, nothing's going to move the needle in terms of the Senate, you know, voting to convict, except that we are dealing with Donald Trump. And I mean, it's he's kind of losing it day by day, right? Like as as this goes forward, I mean, I think we need to understand that the narcissistic injury that even the process of going into an impeachment inquiry causes him. Um, I mean, think about what you said, Renato, earlier, that people are now at a point where they just are not saying no to him in, you know, in the White House, because they, probably because he just loses his mind, right, to, to, that you can't really counter him. And now he's in a situation where he cannot control it. He doesn't know who the whistleblower is. He can't stop Nancy Pelosi. This thing is happening that's going to say that he's not the best president in the history of the world, which is what he believes he is. Um, I think this could really trigger, a, I mean, and we've seen evidence of this, like a serious, serious meltdown on his part. Um, and I don't think we can underestimate whether that itself could change the needle in terms of you know, I, I have to believe that there is some point where even Senate Republicans say we can't have a madman on like, I mean, this guy is like completely going like, like just bonkers to the point where his approval ratings are going down or whatever. It's better for us to have like just a sane individual on the ticket. Right. Um, that, that could be a long shot, but I, I'm not discounting it as a possibility is all I'm saying. That's fair. I don't know what's going to happen either. I'm not going to discount any possibility. I, people often ask me, okay, what's going to happen? And I get that all the time. I mean, I remember getting that question two years ago. I was on MSNBC at the time. Lawrence O'Donnell's asking me, so like, well, what's going to happen in the Senate? And it's like, 
I was like, I'm not an expert on what's going on in the minds of Republican senators. And so who knows uh, what's going to happen in how this could turn out. I, I will say that, you know, we don't know what, and we don't know Trump could just continue to make things worse. But, um, you know, every, I, certainly if we if, you know, the last playbook is, uh, you know, from the last few years has taught us anything, it's that you shouldn't underestimate the loyalty of Republican senators to Donald Trump. Yeah. So I actually saw a good a question in in um the the questions on on Twitter, um, and I think I know the answer. But then I was like, well, maybe I don't. And it, it said, can senators vote by secret ballot for? Oh, that was a, a good conviction? one. And I was like, at first I was like, no, of course they have to be on the record. But then I thought, well, they're making up their own rules, and if they're effectively acting as a jury, um, I mean, you don't know how a juror votes individually, do you? Like. Yeah, I get your point. Although the Senate, well, the Senate rules, I think, call for the votes to be public. Certainly, they were in the Clinton impeachment trial, and you know, could McConnell but for legislation, right? I mean, like, are they? Do they have any latitude in terms of what they can do in a trial, or or do those same rules apply even when they are voting on conviction or acquittal for um, purposes of impeachment? Well, the Senate can do whatever it wants. They have total latitude. If Mitch McConnell decided and got, you know, 51 votes, decided they wanted to change the rules, they could. OK, uh, there's no question about that. We've seen it happen in our lifetimes. But I will say as to the impeachment of Bill Clinton, the votes are on the record. You can go and, and look on Google and find out how each senator voted uh, one way or the other on the Clinton impeachment. So I would expect, expect I'm not an expert on Senate rules, but I would be surprised if it wouldn't be on the record here. And unless McConnell wants it to go the the other way? In other words, unless the Republicans get together and say, look, none of us want to take the fall for this, but we're going to... But he's crazy, but he's crazy cakes and we just need to like do this. Yeah, so let's do it a secret and then have exactly 20 votes uh, and then we'll all say we're part of the 33. I mean, they could try that, but it's you could imagine the fire and in, in ire that would come from the Republican base because, you know, Trump has built up and he's not the only one. Ted Cruz and others have, you know, attacked the the Beltway Republicans and the reason that, you know, uh, McConnell. Oh, my God. The, Ted Cruz would be the first person in the secret ballot to vote against to, to vote to convict Trump. Come on. That's the thing. That's the crazy part is that all some of these. I bet Lindsey Graham, too. I mean, you know what I mean? If they just had the cover. But you know that Ted Cruz, before him and, and Trump ran for president, he was attacking his own. The reason they all hate him there. Remember when Lindsey Graham said that if there <laughs> if, if Ted Cruz was, uh, you know, on the floor of the Senate, or, or, I, you know, I, or, you know, people were it was like sort of like. If if there was oh yeah if, if Ted Cruz was murdered in the floor of the Senate there would be no witnesses or something like that. <laughs> That's awful. It was awful, but it was essentially like uh, essentially That's the point how much was people hate him. Yeah, hated him because he would he would uh, attack his fellow Senate Republicans and basically tell people at home that they you know the deals that they were doing essentially just to keep the government open and stuff were like selling them out sort of thing. So could you imagine the conspiracy? Conspiracy theories amongst Republican the Republican base if all of the Beltway Republicans right got together and had a secret ballot to remove Trump it would be like a conspiracy. I think it deep... would be awesome. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like this is more of a pipe dream than anything. So I, I will say to, to move from pipe dream to something. I'll get another listener question that I think is really important and useful is that. A uh, listener question asked, you know, is, does the same OLC opinion apply to the vice president? OK, I think that's an interesting question. That's a great question. Yeah, a super question. And the answer, I believe, is no. Do you, do you agree with that? Because this is a multi-parter from this, this listener. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll, I, I would also, my gut would say no. And my reasoning, and I'd be interested to compare with yours, is that the OLC opinion is essentially based on the duties of the president and um, essentially the the distraction and the time that it would take for uh, a president to be able to effectively mount a defense, um, you know, uh, against an indictment. Um, and basically the vice president doesn't do anything to begin with. Exactly right. Um, the vi- the <laughs> vice president has no role at all. I think there's some joke that John Adams uh, told about that or, or somebody, you know, back around the founding that essentially the vice president had essentially no role. So, yeah, I think 
that OLC opinion doesn't hold up when applied to the vice president. So I agree. We're on the same page there. I will say, though, you know, and just before I move on to the rest of this listener's question, that, you know, one th- thing that I thought was fascinating about DOJ's move to try to intervene in the Trump uh, you know, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. tax return thing is there. There are the there. There's no indictment of Trump. There's no imminent indictment or anything of that nature. Um, what's happening there is they're conducting an investigation, and they they uh, the the ostensible reason why the DOJ is getting involved in a lawsuit brought by a private citizen who's trying to block his tax returns, you know, from being obtained by a state authority. And by the way, this is a third party subpoena. In other words, the 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 state prosecutor here, you know, is is obtaining subpoenas from the accountant accounting firms. And he says he has an interest in that. And so he's bringing a suit. And so. Why is the federal government interest? Well, they said that there's these important, you know, quote, federalism concerns. And when you read the the brief, it's all about essentially the OLC opinion. They cite to the OLC opinion and they talk about the distractions that it would cause the president and yada, yada. And so it seems to me like they want to go beyond the original OLC opinion, which said you can investigate the president. You just can't indict him, which Mueller not only discusses in writing in the Mueller report, but testified about. And they're trying to expand that. You can't investigate the president. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think you're exactly right because the re- the rationale that we just talked about that you know that announcing a defense, which you know you have a um, Fifth Amendment and Sixth Amendment right to to do, you know, if you actually are charged um, to confront your accusers, to have due process, all these things take time, right? If you're going to really uh, exercise those rights to the fullest, don't those don't apply in the investigative phase. In the investigative phase, you're just in the dark. Well, somebody else is, like, investigating you. Um, and it's kind of what gets to what we said before, that actually in the Mueller investigation, if Trump had just kept his mouth shut and, you know, gone golfing and eaten Doritos, I mean, he would have been fine, probably. Um, you know, so, the, you know, the the president himself is not an active participant in the in the investigative phase. I mean, he might be nervous or anxious, um, but that in and of itself does not distract, you know, uh, practically speaking, um, from the duties. And and actually, I believe, and I have to double-check this, but I believe that um, now Justice Kavanaugh wrote a a law review article that that kind of confirmed this idea of the bifurcation of the investigative and, you know, uh, indictment trial phases of of the criminal procedure um, and seemed to kind of go along with the OLC uh, idea that, you know, you can still investigate. And I think the Mueller report also bolsters the idea of why you would want to investigate if there is grounds to do so, which is, and Mueller says this in the report, even though we knew we couldn't indict him, um, we believed it was important to investigate while memories were still fresh, while evidence was still available. And you can imagine that if, you know, Trump has done some wrongdoing. Let's say he gets elected for another term. Like, are, are investigators supposed to wait six years to take any investigative steps at all? Um, you know, what are the retention policies for these companies? I mean, if you can't even, like, issue things like preservation orders or subpoenas, um, you are effectively stymieing uh, this process. And then the third whammy is that you are also here talking about a state. And so you have federalism concerns, but I think they also cut in favor of a state, which has its own sovereign interests to vindicate. Um, This is the whole idea behind the dual sovereignty doctrine and why states can also prosecute the same um, conduct as the federal government, right? Um, And so people who kind of talk about states' rights, one would think, would want the state to be able to, even if they can't indict the president, be able to investigate so that at some point they can they can act on the fruits of that investigation. For sure. And you all, I mean, and there, and, and it may be immediately. In other words, sometimes an investigation can result in other people other than the president who could be charged immediately. So, yeah. you know, the mere fact that the president's tax returns or anything else might be relevant uh, to a criminal investigation doesn't necessarily mean that he would be the one who's charged. For all we know, an accountant or a CFO or somebody else might be Absolutely. charged. Absolutely. Yeah, because they are looking at the Trump organization, which, I mean, not for nothing, but I think that there could be some 
a lot of shady stuff involved in that. Who knows? Uh, that's exactly the point. So, I mean, I think it, on its face, it seems to me very, uh, very uh, problematic, a very uh, kind of a weak argument on their part. And it's also procedurally kind of kind of uh, a stretch. And that's really the focus, of course, of, of what their brief was uh, now. And, and But why? I mean, how exactly... I think this gets to the bigger question of how exactly does the Justice Department take it upon itself via the Southern District to even intervene in, I mean, in this private suit? Like, I, I should have probably done an explainer on this or something today, but I, I, spent, uh, I spent a little bit of time reading that brief uh, today, which was interesting. And essentially their argument is, to very a very high level, just to boil it down, is that the interests of the United States are implicated in this private suit between a citizen and a state prosecutor because— the you know the pre- the office of the presidency has this unique role and you know the OLC opinion talks about how um, the president can't be distracted and so on and so forth. And these were the same issues that were raised in the Clinton administration with a civil suit. Correct. And the Supreme Court said same you know, arguments, no, right? Yeah. And the OLC and, and the Department of Justice intervened on Clinton's behalf and they rejected it. And that was a state court civil action. That's right. Now, of course, we have a different Supreme Court today. I mean, that was 2000, right, or so, I, or something like that, or whatever it was. So one of the justices was one of the prosecutors on the case. Then. Indeed. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. But I will see just the whole pro- posture is unusual. I could see the, you know, the, I could just see a judge rejecting this whole effort and just saying, you know, this isn't the United States business. That's one way of going about this, just denying their their ability to intervene, um, you know, and then it'll be interesting to see what they do next. But I will say, too, you know, you, we, everyone's talking about this as the Southern District of New York. It, it is, in fact, the case that this that the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York has his name on this. So does the chief of the civil division. But all the attorneys who actually worked on it, and it's very clear on the signature line. It's from you know, Maine who, Justice. It's from Maine Justice. So Got it's it. really okay, that's helpful to know. Yeah, so it's essentially just main justice putting the name of the Southern District on there uh, for whatever reason. They thought maybe it would be helpful, uh, I suppose. Um, so, um, you know, maybe it would blunt the criticism that this was coming from Barr or for perception. Because I was going to say, they don't have to, right? Main justice can bring something on its own. I just I tried a case against Main Justice in Chicago earlier this year, uh, in which Main Justice brought an indictment and and so forth, uh, without the involvement whatsoever with the U.S. Attorney's Office here. Interesting. So that happens uh, on a regular basis. Uh, in any event, you know the, the you know regarding Pence, we got a lot of questions about Pence, and I will just say. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, are asking these questions because they're they're thinking in their head, OK, could Pence be implicated and both Trump and Pence get impeached and removed? And I, what I just want to say to answer all of these questions in one fell swoop is, you know, <laughs> remember what happened with Nixon. In other words, Nixon's vice president got in trouble, Spiro Agnew. The, the, the ticket was Nixon Agnew. Agnew resigned, um, was you know, replaced with Gerald Ford, who no one elected to anything. He was the, um, uh, you know, I think he was the majority or minority, excuse me, the minority leader in the Senate at the time, right? Um, he was a, the equivalent of uh, Mitch McConnell sort of figure. Um, uh, he was put in as vice president. Then Nixon resigned uh, later, and then Ford was elevated to the presidency, and he pardoned Nixon. And I guess what I would just say is... Are you telling me that Mitch McConnell might end up as president? Well, who knows who it would be? I already have him having nightmares. It could be. Even if this situation, and we have no reason at this point, I don't think, to to believe that that, um, that Pence would be removed from office. But even in that circumstance, you could imagine that it would be President Nikki Haley or somebody else, right? You know, President, whoever it might be, who would end up pardoning whoever, Trump or Pence. And, you know, so you 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 cannot expect here that that you're ever going to end up with President Pelosi, which is, I think, what all these questions are getting at. Yeah, I don't think so either. And <clears throat> I think for a future podcast, um, it's worth kind of talking about. And uh, I, I was at the Texas Tribune Festival with a lot of your former prosecutor colleagues and another 
um, former FBI colleague, um, you know, this idea that people really are attached to Trump and maybe Pence and Barr or whoever, you know, getting rounded up and put in orange jumpsuits and ending up in, in prison. And, you know, I don't know that that's a realistic outcome. And I don't know that even if push comes to shove, um, that's the best outcome in terms of, you know, we may get to a point where Trump decides to resign under some certain conditions that may preclude that. Um, and, you know, it's worth kind of exploring those possibilities because I think people really are attached to the idea that everybody's going to go to jail. I mean, one thing that I think has happened is there's been a, a lot of, and I think partly it's uh, many of our fellow legal analysts, uh, some of the folks you're with in Texas, I think you've given, we've given people the impression sometimes that the legal system is just going to work this all out and like everyone's going to go to jail. I, I think that that is overblown uh, by a very large stretch. Um, and, you know, really we're starting, people should hopefully have gotten some sense from this by now that these problems are beyond what the criminal justice system is typically dealing with. And yeah. I am very skeptical of the idea that for this type of thing that Trump will end up in jail. Now, I do think it's possible for, for example, the Mueller type obstruction. You know, I could see partly because of the public sentiment that's out there, a future Democratic president being in a spot where they have to at least, you know, not get in the way of the Justice Department doing something with this. Um, but, you know, I who knows uh, what will ever come of that. I just if I was a betting person, I would not bet on those orange jumpsuits. I would not bet on the orange jumpsuits either. Well, on that uh, on that uh, not uh, on that not optimistic potentially for many of our listeners. Note, um, but that does, by the way, I just want to clarify. I don't. I, I. I. And this is where I was getting at. I don't think no orange jumpsuit means that you know that Trump will never would never or there, there's no other option for him to leave. Um, that's the point. Is that that's right. not the only way that he gets removed from office or the ultimate outcome that could come of, of this whole thing. I think, look, I, I'm not an expert on the, the brains of politicians, but they all seem to be very self-interested, calculating type people. Yep. And I think whenever they there gets to a point where they see that the future benefits of being associated and supporting Donald Trump are outweighed by the downside, they're going to just flip whenever that happens. And the reason it hasn't happened so far is because the base, Republican base, is so excited about Donald Trump that all of these people would be primaried, like Lindsey Graham and and so on, if they change course. Um, and so, really, um, you know what what it would take is just you, you know Trump's uh, being discredited to such an extent that uh, that the Republicans decide you know it's not worth defending this guy. Exactly. Let's move on and restore our brand. Exactly. In that on that maybe more positive note, um, it. <laughs> It has been a real pleasure, Asha. Thank you for, for joining me and for hashing this out for all of our listeners. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's always great hashing this out with you. I, I always feel more clarity in my own thinking after we talk. So, I feel the same way. Thanks, Asha. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give.